Having known before my arrival the sort of work to be done, I had most of my supplies already with me. Machete and trench knife for shrub clearing and excavating. Electric torches for any underground phase which might develop. Rope, field glasses, tape measure, microscope and incidentals for emergencies. As much, in fact, as might be comfortably stowed in a convenient handbag. To this equipment I added only the heavy revolver which the sheriff forced upon me and the pick and shovel which I thought might expedite my work. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty good. Uh, better than last week, it has to be said. I'm, I'm very glad. Have you had any underground phase develop? I, I love that quotation I'm, you read. I'm, the idea that an underground phase might develop in your ex- excavations. I, I'm still in the overground phase. So okay. nothing underground just yet has developed. There is okay, a, there is a mound enough. out in, in the in the, you know the communal garden is somewhat of a mound developing. You know. We'll see. You sh- you should get out there. Get your trench knife. Go yeah. cut some shrubberies on top of the. Mound. I will. <laughs> My wife can watch with a spyglass from the window. <laughs> yeah, very good idea. Well, listener, now is the quiz moment. Which investigator would be packing a machete, trench knife, electric torches, rope, field glasses, tape measure, microscope, and incidentals for emergencies? (laughs) Yes, listener, that's right. It's Leo Anderson, the expedition leader. That's who we're going to focus on in this episode in another one of our investigator-specific episodes. So, Peter, do you want to dive in and, and tell us about Leo? Mr. Grumpy. (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Grumpy, as he will Grumpy for... Cat himself. <laughs> as he will forever be known. Look at his little face there. Okay, so we have Leo Anderson, the expedition leader. He has uh, four willpower, three intellect, four combat, and one agility. He is a veteran and a wayfarer, and he has a reaction ability. After your turn begins, play an ally asset, reducing its cost by one. Elder sign effect plus two. Search the top three cards of your deck for an ally asset and draw it. Shuffle your deck. Keep moving. You can die on your own time. And he has eight health and six sanity. I was really looking forward to doing a Leo episode because do you remember when we did the Forgotten Age unboxing and we saw Leo for the first time and he has such a juicy stat line and I feel like a really appealing ability and yeah. I just remember I remember being really excited finding out will we I think we knew that he was he was coming up but we didn't know his deck building. We we're just really excited to find out, you know, would he have access to all level zero allies or how would it work or <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So good. No, he's he's a he's a beefy lad, so he's got four willpower and four intellect. Uh, four combat, sorry. But he's yeah. got this one agility. Yeah. That's the a, a real uh, weak spot if you need to see it. Yeah, and and well, we've just got finished talking about Rita. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, that episode goes up before this one. It will, yeah, yeah. So this is he's a real contrast with how she works. Yeah, I went on another podcast to do some card reviewing well after the first look point. Uh, I'm not going to name the podcast, but you can probably guess which one it is. And we were talking about Leo Anderson and talking about how if you're going to have one statistic that is a dump stat that has basically nothing in it, uh, it's better to have a one than a two, obviously. And maybe agility is the the stat of choice. Potentially, uh, yeah. You can build your character probably about not needing to pass agility tests. 
maybe you could well, I guess you could argue um intellect might be the same. We haven't seen a one intellect yeah, character. In yeah, yeah. I, I I suppose that is purely because of the challenge of playing solo where you're always going to need intellect, but you might not need any of the other three. Uh, the the other thing I'd say is it's sometimes worth looking at the pairing. So willpower ties often to sanity and agility ties to com- to health. So a low agility but a high health is all right and a low willpower but a high sanity is all right. But where you have a low sanity and a low willpower, then we're in a bit of a scary point. So at least Leo has a nice beefy boy eight health you know he's not it's not like he's only got five health and one agility yeah and naturally his ability lends itself to playing cards which soak up both health and uh sanity i can't remember why this is the case but that reaction ability after your turn begins play an ally asset reducing its cost by one doesn't take an action so you can play an ally asset even if you're engaged with enemies and it also doesn't take an action so you've still got your three remaining actions yes which is it, very nice it's because it doesn't say take a play action ah okay which is what ursula's ability says so that says take you may invest- take an investigate yeah. action all this lets you do is put an asset into play from your hand or paying the cost minus one so he's got a, an inbuilt economy or discount but only for a specific card type allies and his Elder Sign effect, I think, is fairly straightforward. Look for another ally in a very small part of your deck. But a plus two Elder Sign effect is not to be sniffed at, I'd say. You know, that that could be that he draws an Elder Sign on an Agility 3 test and passes. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it might happen. Let's flip him over and see what his deck building's like. Okay, so he has a standard deck size of 30. Uh, he can take Guardian cards level 0 to 5. Rogue cards level 0 to 2, and neutral cards level 0 to 5. So he's a classic dual-class investigator. Deck building requirements, he has Mitch Brown, uh, bought in blood, and a random basic weakness. This is just nostalgia-ville for me. Do you remember the shock of finding out that he was a 0 to 2 rogue? Yes, I remember. We were all trying to figure out what he might be. Thought he might be like a monoclass guardian with ally access. Yeah, yeah. But no, but no. So because he's a guardian, there are a few things that he probably wants to look at. First is weapons. And it's worth noting that the rogue card pool has the second largest selection of weapons after the guardian card pool. So Leo really can get tooled up for Armageddon if he wants to. He can bring a Derringer or Knuckle Dusters. He can take switchblade he can also take machete a trench knife a survival knife there's a lot of different weapons that he can jam into his deck and i really like that if i'm going to be playing the defensive guardian who's going to deal with enemies that have this really large pool to choose from one thing i i've always found puzzling is that there's you could say there's there's an overlap between the guardian and the the, the rogue card pools hmm especially in terms of weapons. Do you think there's there's particular weapons in either class that stand out? So if you're going to take a couple of Guardian and a couple of Rogue weapons, which ones would you pick? I mean, historically, that would be Machete, Yeah, obviously. I think we'll probably touch on it later on, but I think because Leo is a Guardian, weapons with ammunition, he can he can do so firearms he can he can play around with that 
in a way that other factions can't. So you can add more ammo with Ventura or extra ammo or custom ammo. So I've actually played Leo as a sort of gun-toting Leo with a 45 automatic and the Derringer. So it's like nice, decent combat boosts. So I don't have to worry really about boosting my combat otherwise and normally reliable extra damage. The final one that's maybe worth thinking about is that he can tank hits with his allies. So the survival knife might be worth a look in. Yeah, yeah. I think the survival knife's a good card anyway. Mm -hmm. Capital G, capital C. That's right. Although he can also take the guard dog, uh, play the guard dog cheaply. Yes. You're weaponizing your guard dog, are you? Yes. It's a classic gear move. Send the dogs in first. Uh, So that's there for me. Then the other packet of cards that obviously we want to think about is allies. Yes. So I've pulled up a list of all of the Guardian and Rogue allies. Mm. And you can take all Guardian and Rogue allies except for one. Lola Santiago. Lola Santiago. Which is a shame because she would be, she'd add some very potent cluing ability. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there there were some really good ones. Should I pick out some, maybe some key ones from the list? Yeah. Why not? We can maybe talk about these in more detail as we go through, but I would say, obviously, you've got Beat Cop, who plays in really neatly to your your desire to fight things, because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, he gives you a combat boost. We've got Guard Dog, as discussed. If you're soaking damage, and Leo's probably nearly up there with Yorick in terms of soaking damage, yep. Guard Dog's good. We've got the... what's what Do we have a name for those two rogue allies, which cost money every turn mercenaries that's a nice name yeah so that's hired muscle and treasure hunt uh yeah treasure hunter that's right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. both one experience so leo can take them he gets them both for free with his inbuilt ability yes no action no cost yeah so you get the stat for a few turns until you don't want to pay for them finally and probably most interestingly capital i is uh, ventura yes ventura Ventura. Yep. How do I say that, Frank? I think Ventura. Ventura. Like adventurer, yeah. Yes. You're doing a venture. Yeah. You go to the Ventura. Ventura. Yeah, so the four cost comes with three supplies that can get added to other things with supplies or ammo. In Leo, that's only a three cost, so you're paying three for a, a slow drip of adding things to other cards. And as I mentioned you could be adding it to ammo. You could be charging up your flashlights, maybe, mm-hmm. as well. Your first aid kit, if you so desired. That's only going to get more flexible, that card, as well, isn't it? And yes. emergency yeah. cash level three lets yes. you charge up the Venturer as well. Yeah, you can use the resources from that either as resources or as supplies. So that means you can put them on Venturer, which then could turn them into ammo. Exactly, yeah, which is which is pretty tasty. What we've sort of talked around here with mentioning all these different allies is I think it's taken as read that the ally is one of the most powerful card traits out there. It's why we did episodes three and four all about allies all the way back in the mists of time. But the ally slot is limited to one. And that means maybe you're going to invest in charisma in Leo, but also there's already a conflict with when you build Leo. If you say, right, he's got this ally ability, so I'm going to put eight allies in my deck, you're only ever going to have one in play at any given time unless you invest something else into that. And I think that's worth bearing in mind for Leo, that that's one of the challenges for Leo deck building. How many allies do I include? How long are they going to stick around for? 
and how do I work around the ally slot restriction? Yes, and let's look at this. is a good time to introduce, this is out of order, but uh, introduce Leo's signature asset. Yeah. Do you want to read this? So this is a three-cost asset with a double wild icon. It's Mitch Brown, sole survivor. Two health and two sanity takes up the ally slot. He's ally and wayfarer traded. Leo Anderson deck only. You have two additional ally slots, which can only be used to hold non-unique allies. You ain't going nowhere without me, Leo, so you might as well tell me what's going on. So in Leo's hands, you can actually play him for two and no action, and he gives you two more slots, but they have to be non-unique allies. So no Leo DeLuca, no Brothers Avia, but your guard dogs, your beat cops, your venturers, your treasure hunters, they all can fill up those Mitch Brown slots. Yes. One thing that, that's puzzled me about Mitch Brown, and I, I must admit, I don't know the backstory of Leo. I should dig out my Investigators of Arkham book. But yeah. Mitch is the sole survivor, right? Yeah. But is the implication that he's been on, on an adventure with Leo? Or has Leo sent him somewhere? I always assumed he was the sole survivor along with Leo. So, like, maybe Leo did a runner at some point, because he's a bit roguish. Right. And left everyone else behind. And the only person who got back after that was Mitch. Or, or it's from Leo's point of view. So someone says to Leo, how did your party do? And he says, was well, a soul there was survivor. a soul survivor. That was Mitch Brown. Yeah. I yeah. never go anywhere yeah. without him. I always assume that he's pointing his gun at Leo in that. Oh, I don't know if that is the you? case. Because of the way the art is. And he says, you ain't going nowhere without me, Leo. So you might as well tell me what's going on. I love him flavor-wise as a he's one of the simplest signature cards for what he what he does mechanically but in terms of flavor to have a signature card that seems to be almost be antagonistic towards the you know the the, the character that it's attached to seems so strange to me and so kind of intriguing there's a, there's an implication of conflict there amongst the cards Leo has in play yeah he's got that yeah. beat cop with him but maybe you know, he doesn't have that beat cop's interests at heart. And maybe the beat cop knows this. Yeah. And it feeds into this idea that Leo will throw other allies under the bus. And his enforcer is Mitch Brown, who allows him to bring along other people, maybe by pointing his gun at them. And that's how you get around sort of the ally slots. Like Leo's ally slot is about being bossy and grumpy, not about like friendship and having a love-in with Peter Sylvester. It's like, it's about kind of route-marching people or things like that. I don't know. Yeah, I've always been intrigued by Mitch. Very simple card. At its worst, it's just a Unexpected Courage number three in your deck, but it's pretty decent as well. Uh, but just a, we probably can't... Well, I was going to say a minor note on the ruling on this. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, it's worth noting. Yeah, so if you have a non-unique ally in play and you want to play Mitch and you only have one ally slot, traditionally you would have to discard the ally in play and then play Mitch, even if having Mitch in play would have meant you had enough slots for the non-unique ally. But there's been a slight change to the way the ruling works. You you now discard assets when you're at a slot limit simultaneously with the, the new one in play. So if you play something that gives you additional slots, you don't have to discard things in that slot to play it. Yeah. The other... Time that that's really worth noting is for Joe's signature guns because that gives him two slots for tool assets. Yeah. So if your hands are already filled with tool assets and then you play the guns, 
you get the slots straight away. You don't have to discard them. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So Mitch says is one of the ways of getting around this restriction about the slot, that once you've got Mitch in play, you can start building your little ally army, your beat cop, your guard dog, whatever else it is, your treasure hunter. However, it wouldn't be an investigator in Arkham without a weakness as well, and his weakness is a treachery. It's bought in blood. It's floor-traded. We paid a terrible price for the knowledge we sought. Was it worth it? Revelation, you must either discard an ally asset you control from play, or discard each ally asset from your hand. If no assets are discarded by this effect, shuffle bought in blood back into your deck. This is this is horrible for a couple of reasons. As Leo, it's nice sitting there with allies in your hand, because you know you can play them at the start of your turn. When you need them, yeah. So... If suddenly you pull this and it's like, well, I had these this treasure hunter and my guard dog in my hand and I was going to start dropping them next turn. Uh, I've now got to pick whether I discard them or uh, I kill something that I've already paid to play. Yeah. The, the, the way to protect a handful of allies is to always have one ally on the table. But if the ally you've put down is something expensive, like a Leo de Luca or a Beatcom... Just juiced up uh, Ventura with your emergency cash. Exactly. That's tricky. And it takes us all the way back around to how many allies you run in a Leo deck. Because it might be great to have a handful of five allies and be about to start spitting them out. But if you then hit Bought in Blood, you're emptying your hand in the way that if you're only running four allies across your entire deck... Maybe you'll never, you know, the the worst you'll see bought in blood is just losing a single card from your hand. Yeah. So, of course, the way to avoid uh, any negative consequence from bought in blood is to not run any allies in your deck at all. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, and just use Mitch Brown as, a, as an unexpected courage. Right, yeah. And as your deck gets smaller and smaller, you keep, keep missing out it. on draws. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Jokes aside... What I find interesting, contrasting this with the weakness we looked at when we looked at Rita last week, was so so Rita's weakness is hoods, and you're forced to confront that when you're building your deck. Mm. You're forced to have a way to deal with it. Bought in blood, to an extent, is the is the opposite that it, it targets you because of how you build your deck. Not uh, it doesn't force you to confront it in the same way. You see what I'm yes. trying to say? Yeah, so so if if I went, wow, I love his ability, I'm going to run 14 allies in my deck, Bought in Blood is more likely to be a punishment. Yes. Yeah. So finding that sweet spot of how many allies am I running, how many do I want in my hand. I think the other thing Bought in Blood does, unlike Rita's weakness, unlike Hood's, is it encourages you to use Leo's ability. To play allies. Yeah, to play allies. Yeah. Because if you can get a couple of allies down, Mitch and something else, and start taking damage and horror on them, when you draw Bought in Blood, you just pick the one that was going to die anyway. And you end up playing more like Leo Anderson, where you go, keep moving, you can die in your own time. And you go, oh, time's up, you're gone, guard dog. Yeah. Whatever it is, you, you're, you're happier to kind of... Yeah, it brings this this sort of cruel streak to your playstyle where you're willing to sacrifice a venturer with no supplies on it or a beat cop that was nearly dead anyway. No, absolutely, exactly. And in fact, those mercenary allies are perfect for this as well because you put them into play for free. Yeah. So, you know, you're sort of sending this search party of cheap allies ahead of you and then they're the ones who are paying the price for the knowledge, the terrible price. 
Abs- absolutely, yeah. So I'm really glad you mentioned those mercenary allies because we're reaching a point in this game's life where there are so many cards for investigators that knowing the best way to build a deck can be quite hard. And I thought what we could do with this Leo investigator-specific episode is actually highlight just a couple of different directions you could go with Leo. So one of the directions is with cheap, disposable ally assets, including the mercenary assets, and they're giving you stat boosts. And I started to treat them a little bit like I would treat a skill card, but they just have a little bit more longevity. So I've played solo Leo, where Treasure Hunter gets you up to four intellect, And when I play Treasure Hunter, the plan wouldn't be to pay for Treasure Hunter for the rest of the game. It would be to play Treasure Hunter for the two or three turns that I knew I was investigating. And you can can sort of take a reasonable guess around, okay, I've seen two enemies, so the likelihood of drawing another is a bit lower. But that's just one direction you could go with Leo, because I think the fact that he has rogue access also means if you want to do anything around firearms, ammunition, and contraband, doubling the ammo on a weapon... Leo is the person to do it more than any other investigator, I would say. He can pull out a big gun, pile it up with ammo, and be set for the rest of the game as just a, a monster slayer. No, absolutely, yeah. And, and we've seen between us at various events, we've seen flamethrower Leo builds and VAR Leo builds, which have huge amounts of ammo and, and can guarantee success on tests. And are doubling ammo with contraband and you know using custom ammunition to deal more damage to monsters and that kind of stuff. And then you just keep the ammo flowing with someone like uh, Ventura as well. Yeah, yeah, you can do do some top-ups. I played Shattered Eons on Thursday night with long-running <laughs> Forgotten Age play, and the it was two-player Finn and Leo, and the Leo player, good friend of mine, he was a bit sceptical early on about doing the BAR thing, and it seemed like a lot of moving pieces, but... In Depths of Yoth and in Shattered Eons, he got it up to 20 plus ammo by turn three. You know, obviously he lucked out into having the BAR in his opening hand, but it, I think the people who say, well, that's actually like a real combo to do, it's really not hard to do. There are so many cards you can include. And, and I even put contraband in my Finn deck because as he started to run out of ammo, I could then contraband his ammo and bump him back up again. And it's illicit, so I could find it. I could make it cheaper with fence. It was a really nice little synergy, the bootlegger turning up to the expedition leader and saying, oh, I found these uh, these magazines lying around here that you might want to load into your gun. Yeah, it, it's curious that contraband has gone from being almost a joke card to a lot of people to being a key piece of some of these decks. Yes, yeah. And at the time contraband came out, we said, well you need to be getting value for paying four or three for the upgraded contraband and getting another four ammo for that is not worth it. Yeah, but another eight ammo. Yeah, another another 11 ammo because you've yeah. already had adventure or, or whatever it is. It it racks up really quickly and then you're set for the game. It's Weirdly, it's a bit like machete. If you can get your machete down, that's your weapon for the game. The BAR ends up being like that, just much more powerful. You're like, oh, I've got 35 ammo. I'm pretty set now. And what it also sets up that I love with Leo's rogue access is double or nothing shenanigans because the BAR can give you a plus five combat boost and plus five damage and you can double the difficulty then and do 10 damage in a shot or 12 with a vicious blow. It starts to get silly the amount of damage he can do in one shot. So I suppose that's the kind of, I was going to say glass cannon, but he's he's not that fragile. It's just cannon Leo. 
just blowing things away. So this is all great stuff. <laughs> Should we talk <laughs> about you. the disadvantage of having one agility? If, if, if there's a disadvantage. Yeah, go on. Um, what's what's your experience you? <laughs> been of, of Leo getting pinned down by enemies he can't evade? In solo, my enemy management solution has been the, the brute force one, always. And I think the only times I've tried to evade, I've done something like committing take the initiative first action. So a big boost up to plus, plus three to make me a four agility. But I've maybe done that once. I think the rest of the time, I've just accepted that I'm fighting my way out of enemies. I think if I were to play solo... Forgotten Age, it would either have to be a high vengeance run or I'd have to accept that I'm not going to be playing solo and that I need someone to join me and be the evasion expert. How about you, though? What have you seen happen with Leo and his agility? Well, I mean, exactly that. So my experience of of Leo was during Forgotten Age. Mm. And it's our old friend. What's what's he called? The um, serpent from Yoth, is he called? Mm -hmm. The three five three that one yeah that that five fight is unless you've got some some good action compression for dealing damage mm. you can just sit on you <laughs> and you're like how do i get rid of this this big lad <laughs> sitting yeah. on my head pretty nasty especially if, when you start to get a couple of vengeance in the display as well as he starts to power himself up that's when he gets retaliate and hunter right exactly, he's only yeah. three he's three fight but he's five health yeah. yeah yeah the the other thing i would add about that is that there are actually a couple of tricks in the rogue and guardian pool around leo selecting what cards he ex- encounters because he can run let me handle this and you handle this one so obviously multiplayer specific but and and on the hunt actually so you could build into the events that you run in leo cards that allow you either to take an enemy on if you want an enemy or to go hunt for an enemy or also to pass over agility tests if you really can't take them or you're worried about negative effects of failing them so he has a bit of a bit of uh, protection baked into his deck building that other investigators might not have for multiplayer but like i said earlier on i think low agility but high health and lots of allies to soak damage normally damage is tied to agility means that uh, barring a few occasions he's pretty set up to just take things on the chin so uh, changing tack here how many allies was that leo player running well good question <laughs> should, we, should we ask the broader question though how many allies should leo run yeah yeah uh, that's one way of dodging my question. Okay. Well, my answer is I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It was probably, the... it was a while ago now, so I can't remember. So I would say, uh, not counting Mitch, which obviously you have to include, I have seen decks that have run four allies, so just four cards, all the way up to eight or ten. Ten allies. Yeah, ten was cards. That with the ten, so that's, is that, was that five? Well, yeah, five cards. Dupes of all of them, yeah, and then Mitch takes it up to eleven. Yeah, yeah, that's that's incredible. So was that with charisma as well? Yeah, point? with charisma and with a plan to really get allies down, and then I think the rest of the assets were just a couple of weapons, so another four cards. Um, it's pr- pretty asset heavy build, but that was the plan. And you're using your allies at that point as a sort of toolbox of 
I'm going to get Leo De Luca down so I have loads of actions, and I'll get Beat Cop down so I don't need to ever commit cards for combat checks, and I'll use Guard Dog for extra damage, and you just sort of pile them all in there and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. So, so ultimately, Leo can get up to five allies. If he has two Charisma and Mitch down, that yep. means he's got two more slots for unique allies and then two more slots for non-unique allies. Mitch is a weird one because he, he, he uses the place of an ally. He just carries two other allies along with it, right? He doesn't do anything in himself mm. except for offering two health and two physical soak. Mm. Which is not to be sniffed at. I, I quite like putting a damage and horror on Mitch and then maybe killing him off with horror to protect slightly weaker sanity for Leo. Yeah, yeah but so so is, is there a right number of allies for Leo? I think is an important question. And... It raises a broader, broader question about slots because yes. Leo is is making us think about a specific slot and maybe changing the the calculation that we would otherwise have around that slot. So shall we run back through? We a lot for a long time we've had a rule of thumb for how many cards go in, in a slot, right? Mm-hmm. And whether that's the number of slots you have available or the type of slot it is. I'm not sure, because I think different types of things go in different types of slots. Yeah. With hand and arcane slots, I would have always said four, five, or six. Usually two twos and a one, maybe. Yeah. Or two twos. So, you know, if you're running a Roland deck, you might pick two magnifying glasses and two machetes. And then yeah. a, a 45 automatic, maybe, or, or some variation on the, along those lines, right? And he has his signature weapon as well, which is a hand-slotted weapon. So it's always, always worth up to five considering, or six. yeah. Yeah. Uh, another good example, I'm glad you mentioned Guardians, I'm playing Mark Harrigan solo, and I'm running two Flashlight, two Colt, and two 45. So it's six cards for two hands, but all of them have limited supplies and ammo on them. Yes. So I cycle through them. Yeah. But Almost always I have both hands full, and it's then what do I get rid of and what do I move on? So, so I say it applies to arcane slots, I would say, but there's at least until relatively recently, there was most of the arcane slots would have been temporary because they have charges. Yes. So now we do have stuff like Sixth Sense and Wither, yeah. which use up an arcane slot. But, you know, when it's it was just shriveling and like seeking, you know, they... they potentially got used up pretty quickly especially if you're someone like Akachi who has an inbuilt way to burn those burn those assets yeah then we come on to I mean body is is an always interesting one <laughs> yeah lots of people never use the body slot mm-hmm. like what, there are very few cards that use it what seeker yeah. is going to be using their their body slot maybe Joe takes a bandolier Ursula in a trench coat Ursula in a trench coat yeah or any other seeker in fine clothes. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Okay, so all seekers use the body slot. We're glad we got to the bottom of that, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, body slot not particularly taxed at the moment, but mm. accessory and ally slot start to become a bit more problematic. Yes, yeah, so these are both single slots, and many signature cards are accessories, but also the ally slot more importantly, is probably the most powerful slot we have. Allies as a card type are incredibly powerful, add really potent boosts, some of our most expensive and powerful cards. 
and there's probably a reason why the ally slot is a single slot as a result. We've seen a card that's been officially released from the upcoming pack, as of the time of recording, which will be the most expensive card in the game uh, at 7 cost, and that's a 4 health, 4 sanity ally asset. And, and we've already had from the core set, I think the most expensive core card in the core set, 6 cost Leo is Leo, uh, Leo De Luca. Yep. So these are impactful, powerful, game-changing cards that fit into this slot, and one of the ways that that power is curbed is by only allowing people to have a single copy in play at any time. How many allies would you run in a deck? Two allies? Two of each? Yeah, it, well, I mean, it's a difficult question, isn't it? Uh, th this was a, a problem we had right back to the core set, where if you're building... So a, a great example would be if you're building a, a daisy deck, mm -hmm. uh, you'd typically want Milan, because he's a, an amazing card, but then you might also want a disposable, I say disposable, but, you know, a, a almost temporary seeker ally as well. Someone like a research librarian, if you want to find a tome, uh, or maybe an art yeah. student or a laboratory assistant. Yeah, neither of those last two were out in the core set, but yeah, in the early days of the game. In the early days of the game, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, when we were looking at the core set, uh, we didn't even have charisma. And people who haven't gone through the Dumbledore cycle, they also don't have charisma. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a key part of deck building for a character like Leo. You know, it, it it fundamentally changes how you build deck for him, having those extra slots available. So yeah, I mean, I don't know is the question. I think when I was build, building back in the early days, two of an ally that I wanted to have him to keep, and then two of an ally that was maybe more disposable, would be the limit of where I went to. And then yes. after that, I'd start adding more, well, having to add charisma if I wanted additional allies on top of that. A little bit like in our previous episode, when we talked about evasion and, and the kind of conditioning we received from the game, that first full cycle in Dunwich that added ally assets to people's decks, I think conditioned a lot of people that buying charisma was a given and that you would end up with five or six allies in your deck and expect to play two in a any given scenario and i'm not sure if it's necessarily the case i mean thinking about my own experience one of the things i found most frustrating is having two allies in my hand and not being able to play them because i've got my one ally out that i want to play and that is only slightly less frustrating than investing three xp in charisma and not playing two allies so i think there's a pull on either side of the spectrum there if you run too many cards for the slot, you end up with dead cards in your hand. Or if you invest in adding another ally slot to get your your investments worth, you actually then really want to play multiple allies. And it, you know, if we if you run six hand slots and only end up playing a single hand slotted card over the course of a scenario, I don't feel like I've been shortchanged and not used my other hand slot. But I do feel like that if I've invested XP for Charisma and haven't haven't made the most of it. The, the other card to throw in the mix here, and it, it's, a, it's a, a crucial one in the case of Leo, who we've been, who've been talking about in this episode, uh, is Adaptable. Mm. Yeah. And what I, one of the things we, we talked about Adaptable really early on, early on in the game's life, this is like a little reminisce episode, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the things we said about Adaptable but at that point was that it allows you to adapt your deck to later additions to it. 
uh, if you want other cards that work with those. So a great example would be adding a card like Charisma, which fundamentally changes how your deck can be put together. And then you sub out a couple of events or skills for another couple of allies. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Leo can certainly do that, yeah. So have we got an answer then? How many how many allies do we put in Leo and how many allies do we put in any deck? I think as a starting point, three or four cards is reasonable, but one also shouldn't feel sad if you're only using two cards because you've got a unique ally that you want to run. If you know you're running Peter Sylvester, just put Peter Sylvester in. If you know you're going to upgrade into a very specific ally or Leo De Luca, just settling on that I think is fine. And I, I imagine there'd be players who say, but then you might not use your ally slot. To which I say, okay, yeah, I understand. But may, maybe I'm in a, I think I am in a minority of, even though I think the slot is really, really powerful, I don't feel like my game is ruined if I don't play a specific ally, unless I'm playing a very specific deck. So think about Finn for Think on Your Feet. Lola Santiago makes that deck run. But if I didn't see Lola and did see lockpicks, I could still do what I needed to do. Yeah, and I think that there's maybe two things we need to add to that, Frank, which is that, yeah. first of all, your allies are assets and they are, to an extent, expendable. Mm-hmm. If you draw a second copy or another ally you, you can have in play, you can use your ally to preserve your tempo uh, and sacrifice it. Yep. So maybe, you know, you've you've drawn a second copy of Lola and Lola's mm-hmm. got one the Lola in play, it's got one damage and one horror on there. Yep. You've got a situation where you're gonna fail a test and take one damage and one horror. You know, is it better to try and pass that test or to play the second copy of Lola? That's a simplistic example, but but that's that's no. the kind of equation I'm talking about. And it's a worthwhile equation because the ally slot the fact that allies are so powerful makes one think I can't possibly lose this ally. I need to save Lola, Milan, Leo, whatever it is. When in in actual fact, Leo Anderson says, no, 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 kill them off. We'll get more out. It doesn't have to be Leo, but he at least teaches you that style of play that you can sacrifice them to survive. And, And the second thing is that pretty much all the cards in this game have icons on them that you can commit to a test. Mm -hmm. So the, the, opportunity cost of drawing a card you can't use because you've got something else in play using that slot is lessened in Arkham. Yeah. Because that that card has another use. Mm, Yes. Quite. It would be remiss of us talking about allies to not mention calling in favours as well. Oh yes. Hello. I think this probably brings us back round to talking more specifically about Leo that a card you could consider is calling in favours in Leo. You might want to use calling in favours in place of more allies so that rather than just having a handful of allies, you use calling in favours to use one ally in play to go and fetch your next ally from your deck and play it with a discount. Uh, I've seen calling in favours work quite well. It's a slightly different Leo style. It Rather than letting your allies die and just having a steady procession of allies, you're bouncing individual allies back and forward from your hand. So you could replay Venturer get more ammo from them, replay Beat Cop, do more pings of damage. You kind of keep refreshing your allies in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I, and um, I'm experimenting or going to experiment with calling in favours in Preston because mm. I've got quite an ally-heavy Preston deck at the moment. I think Preston can easily afford to replay the returned ally 
and searching through the cards for a key ally is a very useful side of that card. Yes, yeah. It's as much about finding the next ally as it is about healing or replaying the first one. And Leo, Leo obviously gets a discount to replay it, which is good, and Preston doesn't care about the cost. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a, a curious card, an interesting card, calling in favours, isn't it? Because it's got... Mm. This, there's lots of things to weigh up when you play it and whether it's going to be useful or not. Mm. Yeah, I've seen it used to very good effect in Leo. I think, I think the other hesitation I have around it is that you're investing an action to play an ally and to get one back to hand and all of that stuff, where Leo says you don't actually need to spend any actions on allies. So you've, you've put a card in your deck and spend an action and a cost to do something that Leo can already do. And I think a little bit like when we're talking about Rita and how much evasion you put in a Rita deck, that's not just her ability. This calling in favours, it's about finding, does it really work for your deck? I think I'd be more inclined to use it for low ally count uh, Leo decks. Like maybe say you you have Mitch in your opening hand and you don't have other allies. Playing Mitch for two and then calling in favours Mitch to go and fetch your next ally seems okay in the way that I might not calling in favours Leo De Luca. Yeah, I, I guess the, the the way you look at it is if you've got a high density of allies, you can probably find the one you want in the top nine cards or, mm-hmm. or you know, a, a good approximation to it. So imagine that action you spend playing calling in favours is an action to draw a card and it's the card you want. Yes, yeah. Which is, a, you know, crazy. it's the equation you look at when you're, when you're tutoring. Often you'll just be like, well, I need to find the cards while I draw. This is a way, yeah. says, you've got a much higher chance when you draw of getting the exact card you want. Yeah, with certain conditions yeah. and, and certain benefits. And the more conditions, yeah. the less useful it is, obviously. Yeah. Well, we talked a lot about slots and allies there. Do, do we want to mention accessories briefly? For Leo or just generally? Just generally, yeah. We've, we've tried to be general and Leo-specific here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So accessories, it's another singleton slot. Yeah. It depends slightly per faction. Some factions have more accessories than others. I'm thinking of Mystics and Survivors here. You can add to the accessory slot with Relic Hunter in the way that you can to the ally slot with Charisma, but that is far less common. Yes, I would agree with that, yeah. Fair assessment. Is there more that needs to be said about the accessory slot? There's a few investigators. If we think back to the core set, we had both Agnes and Wendy... And I don't think anyone else who had a signature mm. asset which used the accessory slot. Mm. But for both of those characters, there were pretty good cards in the core set that also used the accessory slot. Yeah, Holy Rosary, Rabbit's Foot. Exactly. And then, you know, people were playing with uh, the Elder Sign Amulet in the, back in the core set as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So... Yeah, you're in a weird situation with those where you had a card that synergized very well with your ability, but then also you had some other potent cards you wanted to include in your deck. I think probably especially Wendy. It's Wendy's amulet that mm. fundamentally changes how you can play it. It's a really, yes. really powerful effect. Are you about to explain to me how Wendy's amulet works? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, but I, I don't know where I was going with that really. My, my thought on accessories is that they tend to be more permanent than probably all the other cards. Mm. There's no, yeah. there's not really any amulets with charges, is there? I can't think of any at the top of my head. No, I don't think so. They, they all... 
The only accessory with charges is the decorated skull. Uh, that's an accessory, of course, yes. With none. But again, that it's not really a traditional... It doesn't come in and play with charges on it. You charge it up and then spend yeah. those charges. Yeah. Accessories tend to offer a permanent stat boost, sometimes with a soak like uh, Holy Rosary does. Yeah, or an inverse soak like Hubert's Key. Yeah. I think what you've touched on there that I do think is important to remember is not all slots are made equal and investigators treat slots differently so a relic hunter yorick with a keepsake rabbit's foot and police badge he you might be crowding that slot and replaying those assets from his discard pile in the way that uh leo doesn't really have that much competition for his accessory slot yeah maybe yeah. the police badge maybe the lucky cigarette case even in that Yorick deck you suggest, he might still only have a single relic slot because all of those ones you've mentioned can be used, used up, up yeah. and, then, and then replayed. He might have other things he wants to spend those three experience on. Yeah. And then the flip side yeah. might be an Ursula or a gym deck who absolutely stacks that relic slot high. You know, I, yes. I think I've, towards the end of Forgotten Age, I had an Ursula deck which might have had four relics in, or four accessories in play at once. I might have managed oh, okay. it. Something so, on Ellie and something else. Yeah. yeah, I might not have managed it. It might maybe, maybe there was a statue or something on on Ellie. But yeah, yeah. It's, so you know, that, uh, swings and roundabouts, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we we can't have got to the end of this episode, Frank, and and talked about allies and charisma and Leo and just said, well, it depends. What we can say is, what does it depend on? How how many cards do you have that compete for that slot? How many do you want to see play? How permanent are those cards? Because I think permanence is an important factor in this. Is it, I want to play this ally and I never want to play another ally, in which case don't crowd your deck with other allies? Or is it that you're maybe a more flexible style and you want to to put more more in? Um, So let's do some numbers then. I would say putting six allies in Leo and then you'll have Mitch for seven is a good place to be. If you went down to only five allies, I think that's still fine. And going up to eight or nine is possible, but for me that makes me feel uncomfortable because the deck would then be so asset heavy that I would be a little bit nervous. But I've seen it done and played and it was fine. Are there any numbers you'd like to hit me with, Peter? No. Okay. No, I I would say for a basic deck with no slot enhancement i'd maybe look at two or four allies yes and then add two on top of that i'm pretty much always using duplicates so two two of a card when i say add two i mean two of the same card Mm. yeah and then add two for each additional slot you add yes so if you start with four ally cards two individual allies in a deck and you're going to go to charisma you're probably wanting to add two more allies to make use of that card to go up to six cards in your deck using that slot. Yes. And if if some of those, to an extent, as you get more slots, you're more flexible being able to use temporary ones. Mm. So what you might find is that three slots, so your basic slot and two charisma, you could have eight allies if one of them is disposable more easily than you could if you just had the one slot. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, yeah. say you've got Peter, Sylvester, and Stray Cat. Once you draw Peter, you're going to find it hard to use the cat. But mm-hmm. if you've got three slots and you've got 
Peter Sylvester and Madame Lebranche and another one, uh, Yothel. Yeah, well done. <laughs> you know, the stray cat could crop up at any point in that in that chain as you're filling up that slot. Yeah, I, I'm thinking as well of that style. It happens with hand slots as well. You have one weapon that sticks around and then a disposable second weapon. And with charisma, the ally slot can be treated the same. You can have your main ally, Leo De Luca or whatever it is, and then you can have a secondary ally that comes in and out or yeah. you stop paying for or things like that. Luckily, we don't have any double ally slot. What? Yet. Yeah. Yet. That, I mean, they didn't suggest that that was a thing, but it could be a thing. It could certainly be a thing, yeah. And in fact, there is a story card, which is two people. Mm. I think it would be... It, it, it probably wouldn't go down very well because there would be no way to play it outside of Leo or uh, having charisma on your deck. Yeah, you'd be forced to take charisma. Wouldn't be nice. We could add tarot at this point, but we're not going to because we talked about tarot on our UK Games Expo live episode, and you can check out us talking about Anna Caslow and Tarot there if you've not heard it yet. I think we'll call it a day there. Yeah. I feel like we've covered Leo quite well. Man, yeah, and honestly, like, this slot discussion, it, it spiraled out. We, we suggested talking about it a little while ago, and, I, I you know, I thought we'd maybe fill 10 minutes. But actually, I, I could talk for another half an hour about, about slots. Hmm. And yeah. that's what we're going to do. For me, the headlines are still. <laughs> yeah, for me, the headline is still that the investigator drives it. You know, it's not the same investigator by investigator. A guardian with lots of hand assets is different from a seeker with maybe only magnifying glass. Yeah, but beyond that, it then is a case of of feeling out what you want to end up in play, what you want your play area to look like as well. I have I have noticed as well. Just I I will stop. I promise, Frank. Uh, the other thing I have noticed is mind. Joe really likes his hand slot items. Oh my goodness, yeah. We, we've we been calling our Joe Diamond player Octo Joe <sighs> because he's running a bandolier level yeah. two and getting out the guns, two tools, another two weapons, sort of like six-handed, and then he's got Milan with two extra arms. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, yeah, outrageous. And at that point, you're only taxed by how long it takes to get all those things into play which neatly brings us back to Leo, that Leo can build a board of allies because he doesn't spend actions playing allies yeah. in the way that if you were like, oh yeah, I'm going to run this amazing double charisma deck, you have to then invest all of the time to fill those slots. I, I know my friend has run Ever Vigilant in Joe mm. and it has been yeah. incredibly useful. And it's just like, you know, Joe flips open his trench coat and pulls out a gun, <laughs> a magnifying glass and a knife. Yeah, yeah. Like that, and, then he, and, and, and often, like so, it's, it was it was unbelievable to me that this was a situation where he would play ever vigilant relatively early, get out two or three assets, and then later on he'd be like, oh, if only I had another ever vigilant. But how have you got <laughs> enough enough things you want to play <laughs> that you're you're just prepared for all this stuff, throwing all these tools out there? Well, if you run twenty eight assets and two copies of ever vigilant. That's yeah. how you have enough things Boom. to play. <laughs> Just spewing them out. It's like a, a wardrobe that you open and everything falls out of it. Yeah, and, and you know, we'll talk about Joe at some point, I'm sure, but maybe the fact that he's got that hunch deck and some of his events are and his, his, his tools for doing stuff is uploaded to that deck, maybe that means mm. he's ended up with more assets in his, his main deck. Yeah, you know, if you think of that, that division as sort of... Uh, 
12, 10, 8 or 14, 10, 6 for asset event skill. Yeah. What often happens with Joe is it's a much higher number for the asset column and a very low number for events. You know, maybe a couple of cash, a couple of shortcut, not in the hunch deck and that's it. So yeah, then he ends up really asset heavy. Great. This has been wonderful and wide ranging. I hope you've enjoyed it, listener. You can get in touch with us in all of the normal places. You can email us. We're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're drawn to the flame on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, designed by humans. Peter, where can people get in touch with I you? I am United everywhere. That's U N I T L E D. I'm on Twitter and uh, Reddit and the Discord. Uh, how about you, Frank? I'm FB on Twitter. That's E P H underscore B E E. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. In 1747, the Reverend Gary in Natomas, Master of Divinity, newly come to the Congregational Church at Dunwich Village, preached a memorable sermon on the close presence of Satan and his imps, in which he said, It must be allowed that these blasphemies of an infernal train of demons are matters of too common knowledge to be denied. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Chris Hotevec or an Andrew Burns, they were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Mm-hmm.